Let's give Eric a big welcome, huh, Mosaic? Oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, this is kind of fun for me because Kurt said, yeah, man, just talk about whatever's on your heart. And so today I get to talk about one of my uh, favorite passages in Scripture just because I feel like it. So that's kind of fun for me. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what passage it is yet, though. I'm going to give a little bit of background before we get to that passage. Uh, But what I'm going to be doing is uh, walking through some of the book of Luke. So if you feel like uh, following along, uh, pulling up the passage, it's going to be, I think I'm going to start in Luke 4. Um, There's a little bit of background I have to give you, though. Uh, In order to really be able to track at all with... Uh, the Gospels and like the types of interactions that Jesus has with uh, people, uh, it's very, very important to understand uh, a couple of things. One, the people were expecting a Messiah, but Messiah to them was very different than what we usually think of in like the, the church world. Uh, uh, they would use the word Messiah to mean king. Uh, because uh, Messiah basically meant uh, a, an anointed person, and that that tradition tied back to rituals tied to kings. And so uh, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus were uh, hoping for the arrival of a Messiah, but when they said that, they weren't thinking in terms of uh, someone who is going to come and suffer on our behalf and die for our sins. Those conceptions were not really at all what they were thinking of. They wanted a king who would come and reestablish the political um, autonomy of the nation. Because at that time, uh, there really is no self-standing nation of Israel. They, uh, the Jews are living under Roman rule. And so what they want is a king who will show up and take up arms and liberate them from the oppressor. And in their mind, the oppressor is the the Roman government, the, the overlords, if you will, the people who are denying them their own national identity and autonomy, okay? So I'm going to look at some stuff in the book of Luke, but just... Uh, keep it in your mind, and I will continue to remind you. Their expectation, what they're hoping for in a Messiah, is a king who will liberate them from Roman oppression. This is the environment uh, that Jesus enters into. So uh, I'm going to start in Luke chapter 4, and I'm just going to breeze through some stuff. To uh, Well, honestly, it's just stuff that I find interesting. So... <laughs> You know, that's what you get today. So uh, uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, hey, if you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, yeah, people don't live on bread alone. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you authority and splendor, and you'll be awesome and amazing, and all of this will be yours. And Jesus says, yeah, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Uh, And then the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple 
hey, if you're actually the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. And they'll lift up their, uh, they will lift, up in their hand, lift you up in their hands so that you won't strike your foot against stone. And Jesus said, yeah, uh, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, Jesus is uh, quoting uh, different OT passages. Uh, and then uh, when the devil had finished tempting him, uh, he left until he could find a better time to come and mess with Jesus. And you read this passage, and it's kind of like, you know, A of all, what? Fast for 40 days. I don't know if I'd buy that. What's going on? And it's easy to get wrapped up in, in the wrong things. Uh, let me just tell you very simply, uh, for somebody who, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Uh, well, I should warn you, uh, for those of you who don't know, my background, uh, Old Testament studies. So I, I grew up in the church, and, and I was like, wow, the Bible's kind of interesting, but I don't really understand uh, the Old Testament at all. So what happened when I was at seminary is I kept gravitating to all of the Old Testament stuff. And it kind of made sense because a lot of the New Testament stuff was sort of familiar to me. I'd heard it preached a lot in churches growing up. But something like Leviticus, I couldn't get anything out of or figure out even remotely why it was in the Bible at all. And so I just gravitated towards going deeper and deeper into the Old Testament because for me, I just kept discovering all of this new, really, really cool stuff when I would dig in. So, you know, fast forward however many years later, uh, PhD in Old Testament. So a lot of times when I'm reading, <clears throat> uh, say, the Gospels, for example, for me it triggers all kinds of Old Testament stuff uh, because that, that's what I do, you know, Old Testament scholar kind of stuff. And so um, I used to get made fun of when I taught at the undergraduate level, I would do a class that was basically introduction to, to the Gospels and, and to, like, the life of Jesus and my students would uh, make fun of me that it was actually an Old Testament class called The Life of Christ. Because the whole way through the class, I would be pulling out, you know, hey, okay, guys, here's this Old Testament thing. Watch how this works. Now look at what Jesus does. You know, and it creates all of these, whoa, what kind of things, okay? So my point in saying all of that is for an OT guy, what happens here at the beginning of Luke 4 automatically triggers, oh, Jesus is going to be successful where Israel failed. Uh, and, and it's that 40 days stuff and the wilderness stuff that triggers it. And then the, the types of things he quotes is what triggers it for an Old Testament person. So some other time, I could go into a, a lot more depth on that. But for, for this morning... This opening thing, what you need to realize, Jesus is going to pull off successfully what Israel was supposed to be, but they failed. And in order to really get at the heart of what Israel was supposed to be, there's a very interesting passage in Exodus. It's Exodus 19, verses 3 through 8, and it's after the Israelites have been delivered from slavery They make it to Mount Sinai, and God shows up, and he says, Hey, guys, if you want to be my special people, my holy nation, my kingdom of priests, my special treasure, this thing that I use to display to the world how awesome I am so that all of the other nations will see who I am, see my heart, see what I care about, and be drawn to me. 
And that was the original call to the nation of Israel. But Israel, through their unfaithfulness, struggled to ever really pull it off in any sort of an effective manner. And so what Luke is doing by starting Jesus's um, adult activities, the first three chapters are all the birth and the youth of Jesus. When you get to chapter four, okay, now he's an adult. And Luke starts with this wilderness thing because what Luke is telling you is that thing that Israel was supposed to do and could never really pull off effectively, Jesus is going to do it. And so it begins to trigger, oh, this mission of representing God to, to the world such that the world is drawn to God. This is going to be part of Jesus' mission and identity, and we get it right off the bat. So then we roll in to verse 14 in chapter 4. And Jesus returns to Galilee in the, spirit of, uh, uh, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him is spreading all over the place. And he's teaching in the synagogues, and people are speaking well of him. And then he goes to Nazareth, which is his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. It's his custom because he's a rabbi, uh, a teacher. This is what they do. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what's interesting about this uh, passage that he's reading from is this is a passage that for first century Jews would trigger, uh, this is Messiah talk. This is, this is what we're expectantly hoping God to send his king to do. You know, when, when they would hear to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, they would be thinking in terms of Roman rule. We're the prisoners under Roman rule, and we need a king to come and deliver us. When it says to set the oppressed free, that's what they would be thinking of. They would be thinking of their oppression that they are enduring under Roman rule. So when Jesus reads this passage, For them, it's going to trigger all of this messianic, the king who's going to come and deliver us from Roman rule. It would trigger that for them. And so Jesus rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fastened on him. And he looks at him and says, yeah, today, fulfilled. And and this is amazing to them. Because this is going to begin to give them hope that God is going to give his king who will reclaim the throne over Israel and throw off Roman oppression. And so the next verse says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said? They're they're speaking well of him. So Jesus... (laughs) Everybody is speaking well of him, so Jesus is about to tick him off. This is kind of how he works sometimes. Jesus says, you know, surely you're going to quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. But um, look, here's the deal, guys. Prophets aren't accepted in their hometowns. I assure you, 
that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Uh, He quotes a couple of passages from Kings. That's what he does. And look at the response of the crowd. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. (laughs) He went from... Everyone is speaking well of him. They're amazed. His gracious words, wow. Because they're feeling this hope of the Messiah, a king who is going to come and deliver us from Roman rule. And Jesus looks at him and quotes a couple stories. And the thing that is in those stories that is so upsetting, both of those stories are instances where the unfaithfulness of Israel was so great And God's desire to pour out his grace and to bless people so strong that God had to go outside the nation of Israel to find people to bless. And the the Jews know those stories. And they understand immediately that what Jesus is saying is, y'all think you're on the inside. You think that this liberation and this day of a coming king is about you and for you. And you're going to be the ones who benefit. But this is going to be just like in those days when God couldn't find faithfulness amongst his own people and had to go outside of the insiders to pursue the outsiders. They understand this. And that's why they're so furious at him, furious to the point where they want to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And Luke gives us no indication of how that went down. But that had to be pretty cool. So then, as we keep going in chapter 4, a a really interesting thing happens. Remember, the king should be coming to overthrow us from the oppressor, and the oppressor is Rome. But here's what happens. Jesus went down to Capernaum, uh, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people, and they're amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by, by a demon, an evil spirit, and he cried out at the top of his voice. Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And an interesting thing happens. First, Jesus tells, tells him to shut up. And then he says, come out, of, uh, come out of the person. And so the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And, of course, the people are amazed. And then in the next story... Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. And so he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she got up at once and began to wait on them. And then you see that Jesus is healing all kinds of sickness and disease and begs the question, what is going on here? Well, here's what's going on. Jesus shows up and he says, hey, here's a Messiah passage. Guess what? Fulfilled. Some stuff's about to go down. But you know what? You guys who are really, really thinking you're you're the insiders, you're going to be a part of this. You're going to be on the inside. Not going to work that way. 
And then, remember, the expectation is the oppressor is Rome. Jesus goes, and he heals people from demons and from disease. And what Jesus is doing is he's beginning to reveal my kingdom is not about Roman oppression. My kingdom is about real oppression. Oppression at the level of demons and disease. Jesus is showing who his real enemy is going to be. He's showing who the real oppressors are that he is going to be able to, re- to relieve people from. So he's beginning to show, yeah, I'm the king. I have come. The kingdom of God is coming, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to break out. It's going to be real. But it's not about Roman oppression. It's about those things that really, truly oppress us. And he, the other thing I would say about that passage, he tells the demons to shut up because they know who he is. And what you find at the beginning of the Gospels is that when Jesus is getting underway in his ministry, he tells people not to spread the news too quickly. And he does that because he knows that if the news gets out that the king has come who is going to set us free, he knows everyone is going to read that as take up your arms and go fight against Rome. And Jesus needs the time to allow the news about what his kingdom is really like to spread. And so that's why at the beginning of his ministries, he, he, he tells uh, people or demons in this story, you know, don't, don't go spread the news just yet. He's trying to establish what his kingdom is actually going to look like and who uh, the war is actually going to be against. And so then uh, he goes and uh, you get this famous story at the beginning of chapter 5 where uh, he goes and, and sees the fisherman. And he's like, hey, let's go out in, into the deep water and cast the nets again. And the fishermen look at him and they're like, yeah, okay, you realize it's totally the wrong time of day and this makes no sense. But since you say to, all right, let's go. And then they catch a ton of fish. And Peter's response is amazing. It's uh, chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, this giant catch of fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Part of what Luke does uh, through his gospel is he sets up this contrast about insiders and outsiders. And oftentimes the people that you think should be the insiders, end up being moved to the outside. And the people that you think should be on the outside, like a grungy, low-class fisherman, those are often the people that are moved to the inside. Because these are the people, like Peter does here, who begin to recognize who Jesus is. And they begin to take him seriously. And what you see is that very often... The religious leaders, they're too busy, like, quizzing him and making sure that his doctrine is correct to actually really take the, the, uh, have the awareness to recognize him as king. All right, so this goes on. And in these opening chapters, he's basically just showing what my kingdom is going to be like. Yes, I'm the king. I have come. I, inviting, I am inviting people into my rule I'm inviting people into my kingdom to enter into my dominion, to allow me to be their king. 
But understand that my main priority is not Roman oppression. It's human oppression. And these things that go on at our very deep core human levels, these are the things I want to release people from. And he's inviting people that often you wouldn't think should be invited to be on the inside. Um, Another example is at the end of chapter 5 when he calls uh, Levi, who's a tax collector. Tax collector, uh, well, okay, I don't want to have taxes taken, but what's the big deal? Uh, tax collector means this is a guy who, ha- who is considered a traitor by his people, a political traitor. Because a tax collector means he's turned his back on his own Jewish people, and he has sided with the Roman government to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. Okay? So... Anytime in the news you, you, you catch wind of someone who has traded away American government or, you know, top secret type of secret military stuff somewhere else, like in the United States, we have this, that's a traitor, we hate him kind of reaction. And, and that's the kind of reaction that you're dealing with here. So it is, am I being clear? Because like, what I'm trying to say is it is so overwhelmingly obnoxious that Jesus would call Levi to be one of his main guys. It's just weird. And that, that's, that's part of what he's up to. And as you roll into chapter 6, uh, you see he rounds out the 12, gets his 12 disciples. Uh, he does some teaching. There's a kind of a uh, a longer passage of Jesus' teaching in chapter 6. And at the end of it, this is chapter 6, verses four, uh, verse 46. He makes this comment. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then you don't do what I say? As for those who come to me and hear my words and put them into practice, I will show you what they're like. And then he uses a really good analogy. Uh, Jesus is pointing out this thing. You're catching a hint that I'm a Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Messiah is king. You don't have a king and then consider their commands sort of optional. That's not how kingdoms work. And so what Jesus is pointing out is, hey, guys, you really like saying, oh, Lord, Lord, and, and, and kind of cluing in to maybe this, uh, this is the king kind of stuff. And you're sort of brown-nosing me a little bit, but you're not actually interested in what I have to say. And that's, that's another one of the big issues, all right? So there's two issues I've been trying to drive towards. One is Luke is going to track insiders and outsiders and the people we think should definitely be on the outside, like the traitor, are on the inside. And the people that we think definitely should be on the inside, like our religious leaders, are on the outside. And then the other thing is this authority issue. If a king has come and you say, I want to be in your kingdom, but then you're like, well, I mean, I want to be in your kingdom so long as your commands sort of suit me. You're not really in the kingdom. And this is what he's pointing to at the end of chapter 6. So then we roll into chapter 7. 
And the beginning of chapter 7 is one of my all-time favorite, most amazing passages in all of Scripture that I'm kind of pumped I get to talk about. Check this one out. So when Jesus had finished saying all, these, uh, all this stuff, he goes to Capernaum, and there is a centurion's uh, servant. Uh, centurion, Roman military oppressor, okay? There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, saying, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And so Jesus went along. You have a Roman military guy, right? A military guy, part of the oppressors, who recognizes that this is part of the political climate. And so what he does is he asks Jewish leaders to go to Jesus, right? He's clued in to these kind of who's on the inside, who's on the outside stuff in, in some ways. And then, uh, uh, Jesus, so Jesus goes with these people. And then when he was not far from the house, he wasn't far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him. So first... The centurion sends people that he thinks Jesus will consider to be on the inside, Jewish people. And now he's sending friends. Uh, and, and the friends say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Right? This is the message the centurion is sending through his friends. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes here. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, look, look at what the guy says. I, I, didn't, I sent other people. I sent people maybe you'd consider to be your friends because I, I'm not worthy to come. That's why I sent the Jewish leaders. And then the guy starts talking about authority issues. Now, I'm a man under authority, and I know what it's like to have authority. And you read it, and you're like, what, what on earth is this guy on about? But look at the way Jesus responds in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, you know what? I haven't found such amazing faith, even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The, the thing you have to catch in this is we've been talking about insiders and outsiders. And what you see in the centurion is a complete and total lack of presumption. He does not assume he's on the inside. If anything, he assumes he's on the outside. And so he has an awareness of falling upon the grace of Jesus to do this thing. The other thing that you see from the centurion is he clearly understands authority issues. And the reason this matters is because he's recognizing Jesus' authority. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king who has come. And his own people, by and large, reject him. 
They reject his rule or his reign or his authority. And the centurion has enough awareness to say, I see the authority issues. I see that you are a man with authority. And I understand authority. I recognize your authority. And I'm willing to do things your way. However you want it to go down, you're the one in authority. It's, it's like a worked out expression of your will be done kind of a thing. And I believe this is why Jesus turns and tells everyone, I haven't seen faith like this. Because at the end of the day, faith requires an awareness that Jesus is our king. And we might not like it, and we can rage against it. And I think, I think God is gracious enough that he welcomes our expressions. He welcomes us really, truly expressing our hearts, our issues, our concerns. He, he welcomes. You see it in all over the Psalms. He welcomes our expressions of, God, you're jacking this up. What is going on? What are you doing? He welcomes all that stuff. But at the end of the day, to call Jesus king is to recognize where authority is and at the end of the day, in what direction you're going to go. And I I think this is what Jesus sees in the centurion. But it, it doesn't really answer the question of why this is my favorite passage or one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And here's why. I grew up in a tradition Uh, a church tradition that was very much about God's love. God loves you. And I would very regularly hear sermons uh, or talks or, you know, the youth pastor talking uh, in youth group as I was growing up or whatever it was. Jesus loves you. We would sing, yes. I was one of those kids. You know, I have memories of third grade camp. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I, I grew up with Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He's tender-hearted. He comes alongside the broken-hearted. Uh, all of these kinds of messages. And I'm thankful for it, but it doesn't do much for me. And I, I don't know how much of this is uh, gender differences. I was asking my wife about this on the way here, you know. Because uh, sometimes you'll hear speakers say, like, when they're talking about husband-wife relationships, the husband wants to be admired and respected, and the woman wants to be loved and, and accepted and, and uh, provided for, you know, these kind of stereotypes. And I, I, don't, I, don't know, I, I don't know the ins and outs on that stuff, but here's what I know. I grew up with constant messages of Jesus loves you and constantly singing songs about Jesus loves me. And what I long for more than anything else is for Jesus to turn to his friends and say, have you seen that guy? Holy crap, have you seen Eric? Oh, that, that, that faith. That's awesome. And that's why I love this passage so much. Because it gives me a glimmer of hope that Jesus is willing to turn to his friends 
and say, look at Eric. He's doing good work. And that's what I crave more than anything in my relationship with the Lord. But look at the next story. In the very next story, there's a woman, a widow. And when you hear widow in the first century world or anywhere in the Old Testament, you should think vulnerable, uh, financial security up in the air. A widow whose only son has died. And look at Jesus' response to her. It's in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he comforts her. God knows how to interact differently with men and with women. And I love that. And you see it right here in these back-to-back stories. I'd like to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for your kindness and your graciousness and for your invitation to us to take part in your kingdom and to take part in your mission and to take part in what you're doing in the world. Lord, I ask that for those of us who are more wired to want to hear you say, well done, I ask that you would whisper that. Especially to the men in this room, that as we grapple with trying to be faithful with you, that we would hear that little voice that says, yeah. And for those that are in a, a, a spot where they just need to hear of your acceptance and your love and your um, security that you provide. Lord, I ask that you would whisper that to those. And I just thank you for the way that you uh, individualize your message to each one of us because you love and care for each one of us uh, that much. Amen.